suave, your mind blowing, thought provoking, and eye opening on air personality, life coach, psychotherapist, author, and creator. Hope you guys have a suave day. Yeah, and with that, let's commence the pay. Okay, I'm so suavalous, you so suavalous. Together we can fix the trauma that's befalling us. Divine social interactions remains marvelous. Mind blowing, suavalicious talk, higher consciousness. But think, let not your hearts be troubled, Dr. Brother Suave. Divine light get you dull. Greetings. This is Dr. Brother Suave, your mind-blowing, thought-provoking, and eye-opening on-air personality, life coach, psychotherapist, author, and creator, and your divine social therapist and host of Social Therapy with Dr. Brother Suave. Listen, I'm so excited about today's um, episode. Man, episodes are moving fast, seasons are moving fast, and um, the world is moving fast. And I'm just super excited. Um <clears throat> Had a very long week traveling um, throughout the country, um, going different places, and just really um, learning so much about life. Um, so to th today's episode, we're going to be talking about immigration law. But before we jump into that, I just want to um, acknowledge this individual. Um, when I was young, um, I remember talking to my parents saying I wanted to become a lawyer. And one of the things they said was, never become a lawyer because all oh, lawyers lie, good or bad. And they don't have a lot of character. And so I used to take that to heart, you know, um, because I, I learned that they was always committed to the system instead of their clients. And so I, I believe that. However, um, getting an opportunity to learn people and, and realize that we do have good and bad people and also learn that we had people who were actually committed to the system, but also committed to justice and the rights of people that they are representing. So over the years, um, the individual we're having on tonight, I got a chance to learn them personally and realize that, I mean, it's a lot of people I've met throughout my journey, but this person just has so much character. And, you you know, when I'm talking about character, integrity, um, there's nothing that they won't do. Um, they are a person of valor, a person who's just honest, a person who's always have the best interests of um, anybody that they're uh, associated with. So I wanted to um, really just acknowledge them. And I was um, blessed and honored that they was um, coming on uh, social therapy with Dr. Brother Swab and be able to share uh, their thoughts in terms of our legal system. Now, again, we're going to be talking about immigration law. So what I'm going to do is just um, talk about this individual. This individual served as an immigration and custom enforcement agent. And I remember um, learning them again. I'm like, wow, ICE, we know about ICE. And they served as assistant chief counsel from 1999 to 19, um, what, to 2020. And, and I've learned all about their career. And so I'm going to read a little bit about them. Let's see if I have all my documents around. Yes, here it is right here. Because I just, I can't remember all this about them. Oh, my God. So anyway, what I'm going to do is um, because I, I, I don't know where I lost my papers. But anyway, I'm just going to just try to make this the best possible. But they um, set a lot of presidents. Um, they created this immigration marriage fraud amendments. Um, it was called the um, sham marriage and fraud legislation. And so they did a lot of things and it was um, selected as um, from 1997. He was selected 
through the United States um, Attorney General um, Office as a, and he served as a, a law clerk for immigration from 1997 to 1999. And then again, this is where I, I messed up it. Then he then served as a, a immigration and customs enforcement, which is ICE, as an assistant chief counsel from 1999 to 2020. He is currently dedicated his full-time attention as assistant individuals and family with various immigration needs. Now, I couldn't find the papers, but I, I tried to do this the best I could. But listen, this person, he's going to share some things and let you know. And I'm also going to allow him to um, talk about his accomplishments because I obviously messed up a little. But it doesn't matter because guess what? We're going to be having our wonderful and talented and brilliant and a man of integrity. So without further ado, let's bring on James A. Jones, attorney at law. <laughs> Listen, my brother. Good evening, Thank brother you. Suave. Yes. Again. Always paper, great. My papers all scuffled up. <laughs> That's all right. Yes, man. Listen, thank you. Thank you for honoring us, man. I apologize for the uh, poor introduction, you know, but um, life is not about perfection, but about progress. So I know we're right going to progress on and, and make this uh, outstanding show. Listen, um, tell the people about your background, because I, I definitely didn't do it right. Well, I mean, you did it just right, because I'll tell you this, in no office I've been in, not even in my office now, have I ever placed a plaque, a degree, none of those things, because you got it right. It's about the work. It's about the people. It's about making a difference. And we all know it's not just about paper. Um, I um, did start my career. I went to Florida State Law School. Um, I was inspired by one of my fraternity brothers, um, Ben Crump. He was a year ahead of me. Yes. Wow. So, you know, one of those rattlers, but, you know, I ended up going to undergraduate school here in South Carolina, but we've been close um, since. And Florida State didn't have many um, people of color as, as professors there at, or law law um, professors there at the school had one dean. And so I, obviously we had to do a, a term paper to get out. And uh -huh. one Barbadian um, professor that would come and go, he'd be on sabbaticals and I trusted him, but I didn't trust anybody else there, frankly, none of my other professors except maybe one, but he didn't do the senior class papers. And so I decided I was going to take his class, um, Elwin Griffith, no matter what he taught. So sometimes he would teach classes in like legal economics or whatever. So he just happened to be te teaching an immigration seminar. And I'm like, I'm writing my paper with you because I think he'd give me a fair shot. And okay. uh, booking the course, which means I got the highest um, score in the course. Didn't know still what quite the immigration court did, but um, as I was looking, exploring career opportunities, I'd actually gone to the army and taken the physical. I was going to be a JAG officer and serve the country. Um, they said I was number one on the list. But then I see this announcement to go interview in Atlanta with the executive office for immigration review. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I'll get take me a trip to Atlanta and see what happens. And uh, turns out the interview written really went, went really well. Um, and uh, ended up being a law clerk for the immigration court down in Miami. Did that for a couple of years, um, served as a legal advisor. We brought in other law students as interns, many of whom end up taking an, on a career in immigration law themselves. And you got to know this. When I came in in 1997, out of the 30 law clerks that the court had across the country, only two of us were people of color. And I was the only brother in the whole group. 
Okay. And it seems to follow that same kind of trend throughout, you know, um, my legal yes. career. Rarely do you find any of us, even working for the federal government, who supposedly upholds equal rights and opportunities, right? We just didn't see it. Mm -hmm. um, and from there, I became a prosecutor. And, uh, and uh, after this last administration, it just became too much to bear. I'm like, I can't come home and look at my child in the face, given mm. some things we're doing. So I walked away. Um, yeah. From a six-figure job so that i could do the thing that i used to pray about even as i was inspired by that gentleman who used to be on your right shoulder there um malcolm <laughs> x reading his autobiography that's what got me interested in law school yes so the idea was to serve the people was to take care of you know fighting for the underdog and to making life better for our folks and so i walked away and um, i've been in private practice now for a year almost a year and a half and uh things are different but we look forward to where we are and where we're going. Absolutely. Listen, listen, um, as he was saying, um, he couldn't stand um, coming home. This guy, his whole DNA, his whole makeup is just filled with integrity. It's filled with doing the right thing for his family, his friends, his country. And I, I just, in this profession, I just could not find somebody who just would fill with integrity. Um, and, and the thing is, a lot of times people, um, they define themselves by how much money they make and they define themselves by their position. And, and, and so, and I encourage everybody, you know, if you got a brand that you're representing and it takes away who you are as a person, I think you need to actually reevaluate yourself in your, your morals and values and, and start your own brand. And, um, James, I commend you for what you did. I commend you um, I honor you because I know you personally and you are a man of valor, man of integrity. I've seen you operate in real time, in real time. And listen, you are what the people need. And so, in fact, as far as I'm concerned, the government needs to put you in positions that you can assist our entire country and get them back on track. Because obviously it seemed like everything is dictated by money. And so, um, Learning, you know, I don't know so much about immigration law. I do um, have seen during my law enforcement career and even when I was um, working in, in corrections and I did see um, some assignments when we was um, attached to ICE and they had um, some um, people um, inside the jails. I saw a lot of mistreatment. And I saw wondering why I would see people from, I guess, the uh, African diaspora. And it was seen to be more of them in terms of getting rights. Even when I look at growing up in Miami, I would see uh, the difficult times our brothers and sisters uh, from Haiti having a different time, uh, having a difficult time getting citizenship versus other countries. And it just was always weird to me. So my my question to you is dealing with Title 42. So what is the current policy? Um, and also, uh, what is the impact, you know, of the choice in the policy that is expected in May 2022? And how might, might this impact our communities of color? No, you jump right in there. Um, yes. Understand that maybe, the, and I'll, I will just preface it like this. The reason why you saw so many inequities um, in the jail system with respect to the African diaspora is because the Immigration and Nationality Act as designated by Congress, um, last really updated and wholesale back in 1997. Um, it might be one of the most discriminatory statutes we have in the country. When what? it comes to Title 42, well, definitely. 
Um, we get cited all the time by the International Covenant for Civil and Political Rights. Um, the stuff we used to do with the Haitians. Remember, Cubans would come with the Haitians on the same boat. Cubans would be able to stay, get a green card. Haitians would, if they survive the bump, would get sent back immediately. Um, so when it comes to Title 42, COVID hit. And the Trump administration saw fit to preclude people who had made it through, you know, their trek from central, the northern triangle, Ecuador, I'm not Ecuador, but, um, you know, Nicaragua, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, coming through Mexico, trying to seek, you know, political asylum or some other type of refuge in the U.S. And the Trump administration says, hey, because of, because of COVID, we're going to make you stay in Mexico and wait on the asylum hearing and hope you survive that. And then maybe you can have a hearing and have your day in court. And you know how that story probably develops and ends. So now the Biden administration has probably listened to most of the courts and the human rights um, advocates and immigration advocates saying that's cruelty on top of cruelty. It is. It um, is. You have people fighting for their lives. You, they're having to take this trek through Mexico. That's mm -hmm. oftentimes a whole trail of blood and bodies and corpses. Um, frankly, back in after the 80s, um, the 90s, some of the international cartel drug traffickers found that wait a minute, if I get caught with these drugs one time, my career is over. But I can take a woman and a child who's trying to flee and, and save themselves, buy and sell them and continue to sell them. If they survive, I can make them work for me, even in the U.S., by threatening their family back in their home country. It's more lucrative than the drug trade. So yeah, that's the trade in human people. So coming through Mexico is not an easy task. It's not a safe task for the government to force folks then to wait on getting an application heard from by U.S. authorities for people seeking refuge there. That's it's, that's not right. It should have ended before it started. It never should have yeah. started in the first place. Wow. And, now, and, and it's, it's but no, it just it's it's just weird. As you mentioned it about the, the smuggling, that was one of my first experiences um, when I, I, I <laughs> saw um, individual who was in um, federal um, detention. It was a lot. It was women that was trafficking drugs. And they, they were so devastated because they were just doing what they had to do. I guess not to say what they did was okay, but they was man, being manipulated to smuggle. And then some, and I'm thinking about some of them was told to do it or else their family would be hurt. And, and so they look at women as something that they wouldn't, you know, do anything wrong. And these women were getting caught, caught because they was anxious and nervous and, and they was using them. I guess what do you call it? Mules? That's yeah, drug mules. Mm -hmm. Man. That happens. But so, you know, forty-two. Now that it's lifted or should be lifted in May, if the mm -hmm. Biden administration keeps their word, that will allow folks who've made it to Mexico, trying on un route to the U.S., to continue to on their track here to ask for asylum and, and refuge here in the U.S., a part of the normal immigration process and procedure. Um, and uh, we have plenty of room for them. And we have plenty of processes in place. Yes, the government may have to beef up resources to process people in an expedited fashion. But, you know, there's I don't think there's a cause for alarm in terms of the numbers themselves. Yes. Now, I know that um, immigration law from basically what you're saying, it just seemed to be so um, bad and corrupt. But the time that you put in law school, you know, you got 
uh, corporate law, you got immigration law, personal injury, criminal, civil rights. I don't, and and I know that that personal injury is real lucrative. What made you choose immigration law? I know you gave a little backstory because of a class, but it had to be more to to get you motivated into that. Because as you see, Ben Crump is making a killing, and and all these other personal injury civil rights attorneys are making a killing. What made you get into immigration law? It kind of landed on me after my success with Dr. Griffith and uh, um, in my immigration seminar, I ended up um, booking the course, as I told you. Um, my senior year, we had a, a um, our law journal was doing the administrative law section. Normally, you have to be a part of the actual um, law review. Okay. Be, or be a professor or, you know, have been out of law school. Rarely does a, a student get published while they're still a student. Yes, I, I, I saw that. And, but I was one of the few that got published there. But um, you always were doing number one, too. <laughs> <laughs> so then from there, getting the job with the, part, with the honors attorney, uh, attorney general's office as an attorney going down to the immigration court. I'm like, this thing has been good for me. Um, and then, of course, being in Miami, it's paying bills. It, mm -hmm. And so I just kind of landed on me. But my idea in going, being a lawyer was to change the world for people who couldn't really fight for themselves. Um, rarely are they are you find areas of law outside of you obviously we can do some good for a lot of folks in criminal law and civil rights which i really intended to do actually um but immigration kind of fell upon me and i saw that like wait a minute i really can change the world yeah. i was writing decisions for the immigration court as a new law student or well, new new attorney right out of law school nobody would have imagined remember we had the cubans um brothers to the rescue in miami's playing yes Everybody thought some judge wrote that hundred page decision. He did. He had to sign off on it. But Are somebody saying, out of law school did the research and wrote it up. Wow. Um, Haley had a bunch of generals that, you know, had been accused of committing all kinds of acts of, of repression and aggression and persecution against their own people. Um, you know, a lot of those would come to Miami and try to live the, the fast life. And, you know, at the time, you know, I've been to the UN and train and it's like, wait a minute. Um, we can get rid of the bad guys. And, uh, you know, you had to kind of process those cases. So I was able to early on hit some of the most novel cases that we had facing the country at the time. Mm. Uh, and so thus changing the world, because think of the families that, you know, may have been victimized by some of these individuals. Absolutely. I remember one case, I didn't work on this one, but I was close to it. Um, there had been someone who had slaughtered dozens of people, but he had won the lottery and I think he lived like in Fort Pierce or somewhere. So he was living it up. And we were like, wait a minute. And victims came to the government. Hey, what are we doing here? Y'all, this guy is all over the place, you know, spending money and he killed the entire villages. So that's what I did in my early life. Um, now some of those same types would ask me to come defend them. Um, and guess what? We'll take care of it. Okay, you have a, um, a a statement by Mr. Vanless Lee. How you doing, um, Vanless? You mind responding? Um, I'm not sure what the question is. I guess he's addressing the drug mules um, that may be coming um, across the border. Yeah, that would have seemed like so more lack of a statement. Okay. Yeah, it's more of a statement. I don't. Yes. I mean, that's not necessarily an immigration issue. 
Because when you mm-hmm. think about the amount of drugs, and people should always keep this in mind, you have so much security and law enforcement on the southwest border. You think mm-hmm. that's what we have. But people come to this country by land, air, and sea. Yes. And across the northern border, Canada. Canada, so yes. Real criminals who really want to get in here and do some things, they just walk across the border in Canada because they say, hello, come on across. You know, they wave them in and come on back. You know, nobody's checking. So if you really want to get caught, you come across the southwest border. That's where you may get caught. Um, but mm-hmm, you know, there are other ways that people get things in this country. have been doing it forever. And so we shouldn't stigmatize individuals who are trying to protect their lives. Yeah. Obviously, if the death and mayhem wasn't happening in those countries, they wouldn't be here. I would say obviously, but it's the truth. And if people, I don't know, I love President Biden, but he said he was going to do a study to find out what was causing people to leave the Northern Triangle. Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and the like. Well, I ain't that old, but I do remember I ran country. And what the Reagan administration did under the guise, and get this, don't forget this, of fighting against Russia and communism, they created these illegal wars and, and propped up these dictatorial regimes. Yes. And sold weapons to these folks who ended up being committing terroristic acts against their yes. people. And they sold crack cocaine and drugs in the black, brown, and Hispanic communities. And yes. so under the guise of fighting communism, we literally committed genocide both in the United States against black and brown communities and Latin mm-hmm. communities and in those same countries. And so then when we lock up the young Hispanics for selling the crack cocaine and others that some people think that Reagan's Contra um, lie brought to the U.S., they send them all down El Salvador and they create these morals and these killer gangs. Mm-hmm. Well, that's who's still forcing folks out of those countries very much today. And Biden knew it because right after that, the 80s, the 90s, he was a part of the whole crime bill deal. And so I'm like, OK, you knew what happened and you know how we got here. Yeah, we know how we got what here. You really never forget is that for whatever reason, there's always been a close link between the plight of blacks and people of color fighting for their legal, civil, and political rights, and those of immigrants. Indeed, you wouldn't have, you know, the story of the black population in the U.S. is one of migration, moving people from one nation, one continent to another. Yes, some of us came voluntarily, but many of us didn't. And I think about 20% of the so-called blacks in America now are more recent migrants that would have come, you know, through the migration process. So as we kind of look at what those rights and obligations look like and what that fight looks like. We've got to always think, you know, we got to stay connected because, you know, but for the grace of God's, you know, so go we as well. Okay. Yes. So um, listen, right now we got, James, we're going to take a quick break and go to um, station identifications. Okay. So we'll be right back. Okay. Very well. Programs like this are made possible by Neighborhood Planet Broadcasting Systems, Neighborhood Planet Network, iBlister Digital Media Creative, and from contributions to NPN TV from viewers like you. Thank you.
What's up, everyone? I'm Brandy the Disconnector, wife, show host, entrepreneur, investor, and ICS certified life coach, here to tell you that I'm on NPN TV, the network that is by us and for us. Lock in and let's get it. Hello, my name is Goma Marie Kondi. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified trauma counselor. And I am NPN TV. Listen, this is on Dr. Brother Suave, our very special guest, um, Mr. James Jones. Um, we're discussing our immigration laws and everything, man. He's empowering us, giving us some insight, some things I want to ask. And um, and thank you guys for um, showing up and um, joining us on tonight's broadcast. Listen, when you was talking about some of these laws, and um, so it just made me think about a question that I wanted to ask you when we got back on the air, and it's dealing with immigration reform. So what made your um, immigration reform that you think is needed now? Um, a lot. Well, a lot. A lot. I mean, the whole thing. Number one, detention. Um, President Clinton kind of tricked us a little bit in the 90s when he had these. I think man- all of them. Mandatory did. detention. Um, some contractors who didn't care about the safety and security of the United States. They cared about making a dollar and they make billions doing this. We're given the opportunity to ha- be guaranteed by the government that at any given time, 30,000 people would be housed in these detention centers. Before Clinton, we never knew anything like that. Um, if people came across our border seeking refuge, they didn't commit any serious crimes. They didn't pose any harm or threat to anyone in the U.S. Why detain them in the first place? Yeah. Um, but so that got going and and there's really no need now. Unless you know someone has committed a serious um, criminal offense here in the U.S. or posed a threat, a real threat to the national security of, of of our community, you know, you know, very serious, you know, violent crimes and things of that nature. Not just simply coming to the United States seeking refuge. Um, there's no need to detain them. No yeah. Well, I mean, and, and our system costs us a lot of money. Yes. You end up detaining black and brown people. And usually they're detained. Let me give you an example. South Carolina, North Carolina. Yes. They don't get, there's no detention center that houses long-term detainees in North or South Carolina. So where do they get detained? Some little country town down in the other side of Georgia, away from their family, away from their friends, away from their attorneys, uh, almost away from society, but down in some rural area that, but for the bodies that immigration authorities house down there, the town would not, hardly would exist. So mm. now you're still enriching folks off of the bodies of largely black and brown people. What does that sound like? Slavery. <laughs> they making money. Everything is about money. <sighs> Man. 
So in so early, there are other examples of reform that obviously we have to address the dreamers, um, kids who are brought here as babies. Some of them. Yes, exactly. 20 years, 15 years. You know, President Obama tried to normalize their status, meaning converting them from just being able to live and stay with, with giving something that's permanent. Um, Congress mm -hmm. has to act right now and they haven't. So you have to do something about those, the dreamers and the DACA kids. Yes. But, you, know, you can't take care of the kids and not take care of the parents. Yes. The question I have 15 to 20 years, you need to come up, come up with a way to take, make sure that parents too, who've been here, just worked hard and tried to be an asset to our community. Yes, yes. An asset to the country. Have done nothing but good stuff. Hadn't harmed anybody. Hadn't committed any serious crimes, but only put in. Many of them even found a way to pay taxes that if they yes. ever, they will never get anything out of it. There's not going to be eligible for Social Security. We've just used them. So those individuals who are long-term um, residents, even if not in a lawful immigration status, that have added yeah. value and asset to this country, there has to be ways that the government reforms itself so that we continue to benefit from the, from that brain power, from that initiative, from that industry and not burden them or the country, but trying to now separate an intact family. That's why my motto for my law firm is, you know, um, keeping families together, one green card at a time, um, mm. don't separate an intact family that's done nothing but good by this community um, from some draconian immigration law rule of policy that has to be reformed and changed and there are many others but those are the main two the detention policy dealing with the children and dealing with very long-term residents of this country who, who put in good work for us and have made and have been a great benefit for us um the least we could do is for ourselves and you mentioned earlier it was all about money well if you deport somebody who's been an asset to your country you're losing that's not an economically viable option that's stupid yeah, it just means. Well, well the, the, uh, it's it's three things I wanted to bring up. It's a new um, series called um, "The Cleaning Lady," hmm. and and so she was a illegal immigrant. However, all her children was born here, and she she worked every day hard as a family, but she operated like she was a criminal because again, they criminalize people who just come in here for freedom and to survive and they're looking over their back every time so they couldn't get regular jobs because they tried to work underground so they end up working these these labor jobs no benefits and working in behind off at low wages and the children here and next thing you know if anything happened with immigration law and i'm not sure you're the expert those children have to go with them or they separate or they break a family How, that's not even moral to me right and the courts will say well wait a minute the u.s citizen doesn't have to go anywhere but um, what it's a and oftentimes and oftentimes it's the mother, but sometimes you do have fathers in play too. I mean, what parents are going to leave their children exactly anywhere? Um, and that's why people make the dangerous trek um, across Mexico trying to find safety here. Many don't make it alive. Many of their yes. children don't make it alive, but families try to stay intact, um, even if it's at risk of their own life and limb, trying to stay together and to be able to live in freedom and safety. So. Um, you know, legally, any child who's born in the U.S. is still a citizen, no matter what Trump used to try to say, and they're allowed to stay, but they still have to be taken care of. And so you can't force mom and dad out and think that the child is going to be OK and vice versa. You say, well, we've given a benefit to the dreamer children, but we're going to now force mom and dad away. That's we got to figure out a way to keep families unified the way 
immigration policy once was and family unity need to be at the top of the list. Okay. And the, the other part, and this is what I believe many people question. Now, when you look in America, you see all these housing developments, you see our roads, you see these um, buildings. From what I see, I don't know what you see or everyone else see, I see a lot of people from Mexico or or people who are, don't have necessarily citizenships and police. Everybody sees it and they're doing business labor for the state or the government or these huge buildings and 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 they're not being bothered but then as soon as the, the, the project's over they back looking over their back i mean it's, it's almost to me is that our system turns it head and see what they want to see because we see all these houses are built so i'm wondering if these billionaires have these um uh relationships with congressmen and lawmakers to not mess with their staff while they're building their housing communities because we hope, <laughs> we hope that the corruption isn't that bad but no, listen, it's you, like you hit all that you hit on a couple of issues brother Schwab. you said what um, you hit on a couple of issues here and let me get one out out of the way here and okay and in terms of crafting policy and what I think should be a goal of our migration policies. Yes, the United States should try to attract whatever talent we need to get the job done. So whether that's working in nursing or healthcare, or let's say around here we have we need school bus drivers, you know, maybe that's having people working in that industry, transportation industry, or whatever the service industry or the computer industry. If we don't have Americans that are available to do those jobs, then you've got to get them somewhere. The job's got to get done. Perhaps our migration policy can be pinged toward that. But what a lot of people of color oftentimes say and believe, and not I'm not sure what the numbers are, is that you know, as that the migrants and the new immigrants increase and increase in different jobs and positions or whatever, then maybe that, you know, those opportunities aren't available for people of color. But you know, one of the things I learned in, in economics there at Wofford College is that, you know, if we put give people the right information, there's a deal to be made to connect the demand with the supply. And I say this to say that. If the government is smart and they want to promote equity and inclusion and try to not leave people behind, especially people of color have already been left behind so far and so many years in this country, then it's uh, one of the fixes can be the following for okay. every dollar you spend on a work authorization document, even lawful immigration and benefits. Um, let's make sure some of those dollars go back to the local community and they go back to communities that have been marginalized all too often that look like us to promote things like entrepreneurship, um, lifelong learning centers, early childhood development centers, um, you know, trying to deal with equities in banking, trying to right some of the historical wrongs. And I think that the new migrant populations would be like, wait a minute, if I got to pay an extra $500 a year in this, in this, as a tax, 
but I get to live and work here in the United States. Yes. You know, I think let's let's make the deal, you know, and make it real. If if the administration is ever gonna really push with the whole infrastructure and we don't have the, the people to do the work, yes, we use the labor and work or however we need to get the talent, but don't set forth something that leaves your own citizens behind. If we still have needs in the black community and other minority communities and communities that have been left out, make sure you ping resources directly related to some of these newer developments, you know, to make sure that we take care of folks and we take care of each other in a way that's lifelong and lasting so that after the project is over, you know, both the, the, the migrant workers and whomever they, they've used have an opportunity to have a life of, of, of comfort and, and, and liberty here but also the American citizens too haven't been left holding the bag and they actually get something out of the deal as a, in, a, in addition to, you know, this, the so-called labor itself. Remember what happened when we built the railroads. I think we used Chinese labor to do that. And then we kind of threw the, discarded them like they didn't matter. That's not right. We shouldn't do that. We should figure out ways to have a win-win situation because all people are valuable. And if we're going to use the assets, human assets and the talent, um, of individuals, no matter where they're from, we should always make sure that we're taking care of them and their families, but we're also taking care of our own. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's sort of a part of American history is not necessarily taking care of their own, although they, in certain, uh, certain <clears throat> places they do, but a lot of the money is going elsewhere and we still having um, people in need right here in this country. And also when you mentioned earlier, Try to right a lot of wrongs, you know, you know, you know, and we can use that if we carefully tailor our migration policy, but we can do both. Absolutely. Um, at the same time. So you was mentioning earlier about um, your love for President Biden. So I have a question for you dealing with him. And it says, does President Biden have a unilateral power to craft immigration reform solutions without congressional action? You know, the, the police departments. You know, regulation, detentions, um, parole, TPS. What do you, what do you, um, does he? Yes, he can do a lot of things. Um, you know, some authorities, Congress have already, give, already given the executive branch. When it comes to immigration, mm -hmm. they, there's something the law calls um, preemptive, um, not preempt, um, preemption. Basically, the federal government kind of gets to handle that. States, really are supposed to butt out. But mm -hmm. even with that, the executive has a, a huge role um, as the, the government's top um, law enforcement and, 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 and executing agency. So mm -hmm. as the executive, chief executive officer, yeah. President, President Biden, mm -hmm. he right now can send out a directive to USCIS and CBP to say the following. If you are from a country like Haiti mm -hmm. that's suffering civil and political strife. Yes. And natural disasters. Not only can we expand temporary protective status, which uh -huh. allows you to live and work in the United States for a certain increment of time, but we can also parole um, individuals that have been here based on a certain time or whatever that criteria is. And with this so-called parole, it's not a, an admission that allows you to stay permanently, but, you know, that it will give people comfort that they won't be forced with being deported. And if 
he also with that can say, wait a minute, we're going to treat a parole just like an admission with a visa. So now if you're married to a citizen and or, or a lawful permanent resident and you've been now paroled, Biden can instruct USCIS, let them apply for adjustment of status, basically a green card, because that parole gave us the inspection and admission. We know they're good. We know they're not criminals. We've let them stay for whatever humanitarian reason. And because they've stayed and because they've been paroled, now they can, and if they have the qualifying relationship, now they can apply for a green card and it's a done deal. Um, same when it comes to detention, there are executive powers that President Biden can do to kind of get rid of some of the draconian and harsh detention methods um, that we see. Um, there's this whole theory, this fiction called an arriving alien. Now, the yes, government, you know, it's if they stop you in the water and put you on a Coast Guard vessel, or if you like a couple of feet off the beach and you walk on to the, you know, they stop you there, you can be called an arriving alien because you were kind of interdicted before you entered onto U.S. soil. Yes, I remember that in Miami. Running across the beach, right? But yes. if you land on that, if you get on that beach and before the government stops you, you're not an arriving alien. But the, the question and that is... that arriving alien concept then becomes something that the Attorney General created because Congress did never put that in the statute. Okay. And with that fiction, people get subject to mandatory detention. Immigration judges can't grant them a green card and they're not eligible to adjust status in court, things like that. Biden can tell his Attorney General right now, get rid of that mess that Janet Reno yes. into the statute. She put it in by executive fiat. Let's take it out. It was all a regulatory issue. It was not an act of Congress. Change it today. You know. Okay. So what is the status of that right now? Oh, it's still it's still there. Um, and it's not fair. Um, so, it was kind of a tricky way to make immigration policy harsh without Congress taking action. In that same vein, we can make it more fair and provide opportunity to people who um, can now normalize their status, pay taxes, live, work, and have um, a route to citizenship by changing things such as that. Mm. Um, there's other things like, um, again, regulation. If you've been here for 10 years or more and you'll your children who are residents or citizens or spouse who are resident or citizen will suffer what the court calls exceptional, extremely unusual hardship, you can ask the immigration court for cancellation of removal. Essentially, you get a green card, right? But through regulation, you know, there are certain things that you can do that where the government says, well, we're going to by definition say, you know, you have to show a more heightened standard because that's, you know, we think these are certain crimes or things that should make the standard harder to meet. Well, just as the government can make the standard harder to meet through the attorney general, Biden can tell his attorney general, look, if we have DACA dream of kids or we've had families that have been guaranteed parole or from countries that are going through strife, whether they're Ukraine, Haiti, Honduras, or some of those have been TPS countries, or they've just simply been here for an extraordinary long time that we've never imagined, like in the country, 10, 20, um, 20 30, 40 years, we're going to say by regulation that is exceptional and extremely unusual hardship and direct the court and the government attorneys to go ahead and grant that cancellation so that they can mm -hmm. have a path to a green card. There's a lot that President Biden through his attorney general can do through regulation that will provide opportunity for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of individuals who are quite deserving.
Okay, man. <laughs> so it's it's weird that we have these things that all it does, you know, the 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 president can just take the initiative and do it, and then not. So obviously, this is not a priority for our United States, even though it's costing billions of dollars, it's affecting millions of people's lives, but also using these people as, you know, they're not criminals. And, they, and like I say, you see them on the roads. You don't see Americans building roads. <laughs> you know, it just... So I mean, listen, you got to be careful too about looking at folks. You can't look at somebody and tell what they're saying. No, no, I, 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 hey, know, listen. Um, but we get, we, but we, 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 you know, they're all, and obviously, listen, there are millions of people. A reason I say that don't have is, documented status, and they're going to work to take care of their families. So why not let them do that above? Yeah, I, I, that's so what I, that I don't have a problem in doing so as well. The fact is, I, I just feel that they turn out because you know, you know, when you when you're getting a house, getting a house built, and you go in these communities, this is what I see. Okay, we just probably had some technical difficulties, but nevertheless, um, listen, I wanted to ask you a question because I see, notice that when you transition, so this is my question. Um, how does the private advocacy differ from your formal life as a prosecutor for INS and ICE? How oh, wow. Um, the private world, man. Yeah, this is my first time in private practice too. I've been, you know, I've been a public servant probably since high school. Um, even even in law school, I worked at the Children's Advocacy Center defending juveniles in in the process. I volunteered. Grand evening. Mm -hmm. I volunteered with the public defender's office um, defending people on 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 some ca some capital collateral cases. Those were on death row. Um, I then interned with the with 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 the Bay County Judicial System. Even mm -hmm. working and volunteered then too with working with children who were part of um, a teen court process, which is funny enough too. But you know, so and then of course from there, I, I worked at the public, uh, the county attorney's office. Uh, mm -hmm. I think either Ben Crump or his law partner um, Daryl Parks had talked to the county attorney, and they're like, "We don't have an internship." But since y'all <laughs> so bold, to just tell us to develop something because you got a good guy in law school here. They created a, pro a position for me. So I've been a public servant working, you know, in public life, literally almost all my life, but for this last year or so. so yeah, I have a question now. I don't know. You can correct me or, or let me know. I, I, I once heard that if you worked for the government. So let's say I'm your brother. Right. And I had a legal situation and I'm like, I don't know anybody. And I'm like, hey, Jay, um, could you just stand in for court for me right now? And. I don't know is this true, but I heard that you couldn't do that. Well, there are limitations there. I mean, yes, but for the most I, part, even, even going through background checks, I've had friends because I grew up in the hood um, in the projects and people call me up like, what'd you do? The FBI told me to come to their office. I'm like, for what? They want to talk about you. I'm like, I, I didn't do anything. I'm just working. So, yeah, um, there are a lot of strings there in terms of what you can do, who you can hang out with, what you can say. And certainly they hold us to that standard. Now, other people who work as federal law enforcement agents can go to things like 
racist good old boy roundups and talk about hanging black people and Jews and do things that allegedly like even allegedly committing acts and no consequences against women. And you have people like Jan and Reno who can't find nobody to fire. Some of those same folks are still running federal agencies to this very day. Yes. And I will say this because and I'll, I'll finish your question too. The reason why we know about it was because of OJ Simpson. Remember Mark Furman? He was their guest of honor the year after the OJ Simpson trial. Mm-hmm. And so when the media followed them there, they're like, wait a minute, this is a federal and state law enforcement clan rally. And all y'all carry badges and lock people up. Yeah. And you talking about killing them. What's going on here? Janet Reno, President Clinton, not one of them lost their job. Yeah. So there are freedoms in being in private practice that you wouldn't have, you know, being, you know, kind of shackled by some of their rules as, as a federal law enforcement officer or agent. Um, you know, you don't have the luxury of knowing where your, your next meal is going to come from either because, we, you know, it's feast or famine. And, you know, I have to get out there and beat the bushes and being a small firm that I am, mm-hmm. now you have to be that marketing guy and, you know, doing it and going out there and finding where the clients are and, and, and meeting people and creating need, you know, creating opportunities to meet needs where folks may have uh, perhaps didn't know where they were. But in that same vein, I've always been community minded. So yeah, yeah. Being, now I'm the vice, well, the sec first um, vice chair of the Spartanburg County Democratic Party. I wouldn't have been able to do a lot of the partisan things as a federal officer that I that I'm able to do now. And when the community calls to the extent that I have time and talent to help, I can answer. You know, there was a young lady the other day. She was in a situation. She thought a white guy had almost committed attempted murder against her and the police wasn't doing much about it. You know, I was able to march down to the um, just left the um, the prosecutor's solicitor's office with her. I think it was yesterday. Like, what are you guys doing? You know, so you have certain liberties. And so, yes, we can take care of the people and yes. have freedom to do that. Um, and yeah. and that's life at its best as an advocate for the people. Yes, yeah, so I, I just thought that was odd that you couldn't do it even on your free time. I just even though you say it's certain exceptions, but the fact that if you had a family member just to go, as you know, go to court for them and just speak for them until you get them an attorney. And I just didn't think it was right because you never know. But um, you always had some manager who could call something a conflict or a potential conflict. Yes, and, but or even if it wasn't, you still had to get permission for outside employment, even to do volunteer work. Um, you know, but it's on to, your own time. You know, okay. that's the thing, and it's just like just initial legal representation. That's it. You know, you know. I just thought that was odd. So, um, the thing when I, I have this is I just think um, things. You, when you are free and you're able to work in the private sector, there are certain things I think that you can do and be your own boss. And I'm just happy that you're doing your thing because you are a person of the community, person of the people, and I'm happy for you. And and again, people need people like you. So I have a question. Should you think African-Americans and people of color should be concerned about um, issues facing immigrate, these immigrants right now? All the time. As I why, noticed, why do you say that? Why do, why do you think we should? Because our futures are tied together. Um, you don't have a thriving, growing Black African-American community without an immigrant community. Um, I think, you know, Black immigrants have accounted for about 20% of, over the last 20 years, about 20% of the Black population that are new um, here in this country. 
Um, yeah, some of, like I said earlier, you know, some of us may have come involuntarily, but we all came. Yeah. And when we get catch the heat, you know, if something's gonna go down or some racist extremist or somebody's gonna discriminate against people because of the color of their skin, they don't know you from a Bahamian, from a Haitian. All they see is a brown skinned person. Yes. Your life, you know, is intertwined with being able to be able to walk, speak, act freely in this country despite the color of your skin. And oftentimes people are brown and and tan and black skin are the ones who are going to get discriminated against and hit. So as we're crafting solutions for the black community, we have to uh, that makes sense. solutions for our da- di- diaspora community that are new here in this country. You know, John Lewis, when they came up with the Civil Rights Act in the 60s, made sure that immigrant rights were at the center of the tape conversation. We've gotten away from that because sometimes we let people pit black and brown communities against each other. It never was supposed to be that way, nor should it ever be that way. There are also solutions. Like we have some some, some nagging problems, like right here in Sparmer. You know, we don't really have much public transit, right? Mm. And a lot of folk in small country towns like this, ain't that small anymore, but it used to be. They still haven't gone anywhere. They haven't traveled around the world, haven't traveled around the country. So it's like you start looking for solutions in your own little box and you figure you keep nagging yourself like, why can't I find them? Well, if we go down to South Florida somewhere like, wait a minute, maybe we should talk to the Haitians about a tap tap solution. Right. Mm. You know, we need to link up with our brothers and sisters from around the world and say, wait a minute. How do you resolve these issues, even with limited resources? And if we can tap into that kind of potential, yeah, we can solve some of our nagging issues right here together. So we should always be concerned with the plight of um you're you're right i guess when i asked the question but then as you gave me um your perspective it it made me realize that because yes you may be african-american but also because over courses of time the families are intertwined so you your 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 mother may be african-american but your father may be bahamian you know, exactly. that makes your extended family. So it, it would affect you because all they see is a person who's brown. Exactly. And look at some of the, you know, some of the most adored leaders we've had on all sides. You know, I've oftentimes in recent times come from um, recent first, second generation immigrants. Look at, you know, uh, General Colin Powell or Obama himself and others, you know, Um we can't we can't like turn people away and these are resources that we need as a community and we need as a nation to make sure that we're uplifting but again let's do everything with balance to make sure that while we're taking care of our new residents and new citizens we're never neglecting our long-term ones okay and i know we i'm going to um ask these last few questions because um no, I'm gonna ask one more because I, I I want you to be able to tell people how they can contact you. So, how does the average average American help promote positive immigration reform policy and procedure? Um, that's a good question. They have to just like other stuff, you know, coalesce around an issue. Start, you know, putting out media pieces, getting your local community, your family together. Um, Find out where the advocate advocacy community are. Contact attorneys and others who work in this area of human rights, of immigration rights, of civil and political rights, um, and push things. Talk to your members of Congress. 
you know, and ask what they're doing to correct some of these issues, call them and, and lobby them. Support. Yeah. Let me give you an idea. One, because I tell people this about Brother Crump sometimes when people get jealous, like they're like, well, why is he always showing up when there's a problem? I'm like, mm -hmm. OK, why don't you why don't you organize him out of a job? Create a national statewide, however you want to do it, nonprofit legal um, forum, in a sense, so that when people do have issues, whether it's, you know, let's say with police brutality, there's an attorney in the local community that will handle it. That's their only job. Put your money where your mouth is. Same thing with immigration issues as well. You know, use your resources to create opportunities to make sure that people are taken care of and that they're not being taken advantage of. Do things to promote language justice, do things to promote, you know, employment rights um, and making sure you never leave out the immigrants as you're going along with promoting some of those things. Um, and I think we can build a better community today for all of us tomorrow. Okay, great. So, um, man, thank you. Thank you so much for educating us on immigration laws. So how can, um, if someone needed your services, um, how can they contact you, um, where your office are, what, you know, what, where you, where you practicing at? Are you able to go across the country as, um, doing private practice? Tell, tell, tell the people, um, how can they contact you and, and how can they get services from you? Oh, it's all in the name. Um, James A. Jones dot us www.jamesajones.us that's the website people can contact me there um james at jamesajones.us people can contact me through email um and yes we are able to service people especially with regard to these immigration issues pretty much anywhere around the world but um be glad to talk to you um see what the issues are see how we can kind of organize around it and uh, provide services or at least put you in a good direction um, it's important. Um, we don't have a country. We don't have a community. We don't have a people of color without without immigrants. And we got to make sure that as we rise, we rise together. If not. OK, so so if I happen to um, have some immigration issues, and I, I heard you mention that you in Spartanburg, South Carolina, mm -hmm. but I just happen to be in South, um, Atlanta, Georgia. Will I be will you be able to service me? Of course. Um, you know, Atlanta's only a couple hours away, but we also have capacity to do virtual um, consultations. Um, a lot of the work is transactional um, in terms of it's on paper, on the computer. We have to come to court, you know, have gun, will travel. Um, we can we can do that as well. So we can coordinate things from pretty much anywhere around the country, even around the world um, to meet the need. It's again, it's that economically efficient thing. We have the information, we have a demand, we have the supply, let's put it together and, okay. and, and do what we need to do to take care of people's immigration needs, one family at a time. And I, I remember your quote, um, keeping families together, one green car at a time. So thank you, Mr. James L. Jones. Thank you, thank you, thank, thank you, brother Squire. Listen, um, again, um, if you need to um, contact um, James L. Jones, a U.S. James L. Jones. A. No L. A. Jones. James A. Jones. Yes. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. Um, listen, this is um, Doctor Brother Suave with um, Social Therapy with Doctor Brother Suave has been a mind blowing, thought provoking, and eye opening experience. Just remember, great minds reach great places. I love you.
I mean it. Much love. Thank you, bro. Programs like this are made possible by Neighborhood Planet Broadcasting Systems, Neighborhood Planet Network, iBlister Digital Media Creative, and from contributions to NPN TV from viewers like you. Thank you. Disconnector, wife, show host, entrepreneur, investor, and ICS certified life coach, here to tell you that I'm on NPN TV, the network that is by us and for us. Lock in and let's get it. Goma Marie Kundi. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified trauma counselor. And I am NPN TV. Possible by Neighborhood Planet Broadcasting Systems, Neighborhood Planet Network, and from contributions to NPN TV from viewers like you. Thank you. Brothers, 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 brothers. Hey. Thanks a lot, Jay. Thank you, bro. Wow. God darn presidents year after year won't take charge and change these laws. 
they get this self-involved and everything ends up doing making sure black folks get their money uh you know uh making sure that these laws that can easily be changed impact billions of lives millions of lives they won't you know we how long we've been fighting um um frat for um reparations and they give everybody reparations except us they're doing 